0: priesthood. And so the first half of Exodus is, is a narrative, but it's all leading up to this giant exposition that starts in chapter 20 with what we call the Ten Commandments. Um, and so we're, we're kind of sliding into home tonight, um, but there's a few more lessons that God has for Israel. But I want you to notice as we look at them tonight, you're going to see them just slightly pointing forward to where we're going. Chapter 20 is the place where we find the 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. Um, and so this, this goal that God has for Israel in making himself known on Mount Sinai, um, it's, it's just, just a few days away from where we're reading, but you're going to see things that are sneaking in that direction already. We pick up in verse 8 of chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out to fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Okay, now I want you to notice in verse 8 that this is kind of all of the sudden, right? It's out of nowhere. It's just, um, it just says that Amalek came and fought with Israel. Um, now, the Amalekites have their origins back in the book of Genesis, like many of the major players in the Bible. Um, their story begins there. But what we need to know for tonight, what we need to understand is that the Amalekites were a nomadic people, okay? And so they're, they're out and they're traveling, um, they're moving through a large area. And the first question we should ask ourselves is, why in the world do they attack Israel? Um, And most likely, most likely is because they're pretty sure that Israel is vulnerable. Like many nomadic people, they're opportunistic. And what they see when they see Israel is an opportunity. But I want you to notice that our narrator here lays out the story exactly what you would expect being attacked by a nomadic people, right? It's not like nation to nation where there's a declaration of war. It's just suddenly they come upon them. Now, there's still time to prepare, Moses gives Joshua a command to go and rustle up an army. So there's time, right? It's not like they're attacking the women and children and now it's time to recruit. Um, so most likely what's happened here is the Amalekites have come and basically said, either you give us all your goods and your women or we're going to kill you. You have 24 hours, right? It just sounds like primetime television, okay? That's the circumstances that's going on. Um, <coughs> And I want you to notice the response that Moses makes in verse 9. It says, so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Okay, so the first thing is, Moses speaks to Joshua. And this is the first time Joshua has been referenced in the book of Exodus. He will become a major player in the militaristic sense and he will eventually be Moses' successor. But we're not really introduced to Joshua here. He's just, we're already supposed to know who he is. The reason for that um, is worth pointing out just once again, and that's because when this book was written down, its original audience, its first readers, the ones that these stories were recorded for, know absolutely who Joshua is, because he's their general, okay? And so they don't have to have an explanation, and we'll see that by the end of this chapter, this episode, this first battle is written down and recorded for posterity's sake. Okay? And so we're going to see the beginnings of the formation of the book of Exodus um, right here in this passage. And so Joshua is just referred to here, and he says, rustle up an army, gather up the men. Okay? And the idea here is not pare down the men uh, to a small enough attack crowd, but just find some men who are willing to fight. That's the idea here. So um, remember here that Israel uh, is just a mixed multitude of uh, generational slaves. Okay? There's no militaristic training. And it's intriguing when you look at the history of Israel in terms of warfare, they never maintain a standing army. Their recruitment policies sound ridiculous. Here's the types of things that go on the who doesn't have to fight for Israel. Did you get married recently? Stay home. Did you buy a vineyard recently? Stay home. Are you afraid to fight? Stay home. Okay. There is no draft in Israel. The emphasis over and over again, as we'll see playing out tonight is that God is going to fight for Israel and the armies are only a piece of that puzzle. They're not even the most important piece. And so really joining the army of Israel is an act of faith and not merely an act of valor or an act of strength. And so he goes and he just gathers the willing. But the second thing is, notice what Moses says. Moses says, I'm going to have a role too and it's not on the front lines. Instead he says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Okay, I'll be over there, away from the battle. Verse 11, Uh, sorry, verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, Aaron we're familiar with. Aaron is Moses' brother, and he will become the origin of the Levitical priesthood. But also we see this man, her here, and her is going to be referenced in the inner circle of Israel's leadership on a couple of occasions, but he's also the fa- father of a man named BaalZel, Belz- uh, uh, who is this guy who God uh, divinely gifts for all the artistry involved in the tabernacle. OK? And so just, just these two are met, two men are mentioned, and they go up to the top of hill with Moses. And so get the picture here. We've got three. Three stages of action. Three rings in our three-ring circus here, right? We've got the war, and so that's Joshua, and the elected armies of Israel against the Amalekites. We've got the people of Israel, and they're out of harm's ways, and then we have Moses, his brother Aaron, and this man named Hur, up on the mountain above the battlefield. Notice what it says in verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand... Amalek prevailed. And so remember here when it says held up his hand, we have another detail from a few verses earlier, right? His hand isn't empty. He's got the staff of God, the same staff of God that was part of the plagues being brought on Egypt, the same staff of God that he held out over the Red Sea when it divided, the same staff of God that we saw last week he strikes the rock with and out comes enough water to water all of the people. So he's got this staff in his hand and it explains here, as long as he holds that staff up high, Israel is winning the battle, but as soon as he lowers the staff, they begin to lose, okay? Let's just get it on the table and recognize there's a lesson here, and I I don't just mean a a lesson for us. We should be very slow in spiritualizing the history of Israel, okay? But remember that everything God is doing during this time is to make a point to Israel, And so he's commanded Moses to go about fighting this way. He could do it differently. Did he need an army on the ground when it came to the Red Sea with Pharaoh and the chariots? No. What was the instructions there? Stand still and see the salvation of God. Here they have a part to play, but where is the decisive factor in victory? It's not where the battle is raging. It's not in the strategic capabilities of Joshua or the valor and strength or weaponry of Israel. It's with Moses on a hill and his (coughs) calisthenics, right? And I don't know about you, but whenever I picture something like this, it makes me think of Bugs Bunny. And I can't picture the exact cartoon, but you can imagine what I'm talking about, where somebody has the ridiculous control with their hands and it's changing things, you know. I think, in my head, it involves an orchestra and sound, you know, and so the hands go up and it gets loud and he brings it down. But we have to go, why? What is going on here? Now, there are those who would say, well, this looks a lot like prayer, doesn't it? I mean Moses is raising his hands so maybe what he's doing is interceding for the arms of Israel or for the armies of Israel and as his arms get tired in prayer they start to lose. Now I think that's a totally valid spiritual point but it'd be a lot more valid if it was just open-handed and arms raised. That's not this picture here. He's got the staff raised up in his hands, which is not a normal aspect of prayer. Right? And so it's, it's not that we shouldn't recognize that, uh, that prayer is important, but we have to go, what is the message, not just for us tonight, but for Israel? We're going to see in just a minute that they're told to write this down, this story, intentionally. There's a lesson for them to learn here. God's going to say, do not forget the armies of Amalek. Um, so let's read a little bit further. So verse 12, but Moses' hands grew weary, So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And so after a while, his arms are just giving out. His muscles are starting to shake, uh, and so he can't hold the staff up anymore. And so they bring him over a rock to sit on, and then they support him by holding up his arms, okay? So once again, what is the important factor here? Is it, is it the positioning? No, it's clearly keeping the staff up in the air. That's the focus. That's the point. And it doesn't matter that Moses has help, right? He's not, he's not getting disqualified for cheating. Um, it's, he can do this with whole support. Um, but we have to recognize here that there's something about this that is both essential to the fight of the battle and then also clearly arbitrary. I mean arbitrary in the sense that it has nothing to do with science or nature. Um, it's, it's not like uh, Israel was greatly encouraged by seeing the staff held high. You know, it's not like the general who's been shot three times, but he stays up on his horse so that the men keep fighting. It's something different. But it's also very much essential. It, it lays out like an experiment here, right? There's a theory behind it, and it goes, whenever Moses' hands went down, the... the nature, the state of the fight twisted towards the victory of the enemies. At its bare minimum, it's clear the lesson that God is teaching here is that despite the fact that the army is on the ground and doing the fighting, the victory is not about them, right? The the staff, the rod of God, this thing that Moses has is constantly and regularly a personification of God's power. It's a recognition that it's not even Moses who does it. In fact, Moses is too weak to accomplish what, what is required of him, which is relatively minimal here. But the idea here is, um, is that God is the victor despite the fact that he invites the people into the fighting. Okay. Now, as we continue on and look at the history of Israel, you're going to see that they wrestle with this concept, much like you would expect if you had just freshly gotten to know the god of the bible and were suddenly in in war and he was giving commands and promises on how those things were going to turn out okay they have to learn that they can trust god with this but part of what that always means is they have to learn that they can't trust themselves okay later on there's a story with a judge by the name of gideon And Gideon's called to gather up an army to take care of the Midianites uh, who have been stealing things from the Israelites. And so there's going to be a battle. And Gideon's going to be at the front of it. And he gathers up men and thousands of them gather. And God says, if you get the victory with all these men, you're going to get the credit. And so he says, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to get everybody who doesn't want to be here and send them home. And it pairs down extensively. And he says, that's still too many people. If I remember right, it's, it's, uh, it's 300 or something like that. And so he puts them through another totally arbitrary test. Okay, he sends them to the river to drink of water, and some of them put their faces right in the river, and others bring their hands up, and the ones that do more of the action, they get sent away. And so the army's pared back, and he says, okay, this is small enough so that you'll get the point. I am the victor here. You were just, you were just on the stage. And so the lesson um, that's, that's being expressed here is, is the same one that we saw in the Red Sea, that God is the mighty warrior, that he's the one who's going to win the victory. However, here, they have a part to play. We, we can't say that it's not a part or that it's a false part. It's their swords swinging through the air, right? It's their bodies taking the injury of this. But at the same time, With just a glance, they can recognize the difference in the battle all comes down to the staff. You see, one of the things that I don't think we always get as human beings is why God does stuff with us, or through us, or by us. I mean, just just look at what we're doing right here, right now. Why does he employ teachers? Why pastors at all? Don't we all have the Bible? Why does the Bible declare in the New Testament that God gifts Christians in unique ways to do unique things for him? Is it because he can't do them? Is it because we can do them better? Why? You see, there is a value in doing things with God, but that value is always compromised by mistaking it as doing things for God. And so the lesson they need to learn here is that God wants them to fight, but he doesn't need them to fight. So why does he want them to fight? Why does he ask you to talk to your friends about Jesus instead of just calling them up on the phone? Why does he commit the ministry to his church and say, you know what, the body of Jesus now, you are the body of Jesus. You're his hands, you're his feet. You do the work of ministry. The reason is because God is trying to grow us in our relationship with him. Israel is not merely learning dependence. They learned that at the Red Sea. Things were desperate. But they're also learning how to walk with God in faith. We saw that with the, um, with the manna that falls from heaven. It's not just Israel's got to eat and this is how God takes care of it, right? It's this tremendously organized orchestration where you can't gather too much food tonight. It won't last till tomorrow. But every sixth day, you better gather twice because I'm not sending any on the seventh. But don't worry, that will last, right? Why all of these things? So that they are woven into the reality of God as provider. So that when they're the ones sowing the seeds, And watering the plants and reaping the harvest that they don't forget that even though their hands are going through the motion they're completely dependent for their daily bread. In the same way here the recognition simply put is that the way the fights, the battles, the difficulties of the Christian life are to be lived are not just homework that God has given us and just says you should be able to take care of this go ahead. No it's a partnership And we have to walk through it. But like it says in Ephesians, um, uh, God has saved us unto good works that we may walk in them. The works are predestined. They're already laid out there. The work is God working in you both to will and to do. But we need to walk through it because that's reorienting our hearts. That's reshaping our relationship with God. That's um, developing a character of faith. And trust and dependence, and so they learn that lesson very uh, hands-on here. And so it says here that after Moses and Aaron, or uh, her and Aaron hold up his hands, they were steady until the going down of the sun. So they fight all day long. Verse thirteen, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now we know that's only half the truth, right? Was it Joshua that overla- overwhelmed Amalek? No, it was clearly God but the two go hand in hand. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so notice here, God commands them to write this down. Okay? This is one of the first references we have in the Bible to the creation, the formation of the Bible. God doesn't just take care of them his goal was what in the beginning of the exodus that they might know him and now we see that that knowledge requires revelation right and so they are writing this down and it becomes part of part of the word of god in fact notice that related to this action is a long-term lesson specifically involving the Amalekites. Notice again what it says in verse 14. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Okay, here's what he says. This is only the beginning of warfare with Amalekites, but I promise you I'll bring it to the end. And so specifically write this down for Joshua. Why? Because the Amalekites don't actually live in the area of Sinai. For the most part, they've been living in what we call the land of Canaan, what we call the promised land which means this is a to-be-continued battle. Okay. Now, here's what's really interesting. Joshua becomes the general of Israel, and he leads them in their battles in this, in this holy war that happens um, in the land of Canaan. But that's not where this promise comes to fruition. In fact, in the days of Saul and David, the Amalekites are still fighting. And it's in those days that Saul is finally commanded to take out all of the Amalekites and he actually fails to do so. He takes the king of the Amalekites, a guy named Agag, and he spares him. Probably because it's a politically smart move, right? You put somebody in your debt. You have a massive, you owe me one. Remember when I spared your life, right? But he goes against the grain of the command and because of that, he loses his rule. He's removed from the throne. And not only that, you know who the final descendant of Agag mentioned in scripture is? He's a character in the book of Esther. And his whole desire is to wipe out the Jews. Okay, uh, Agag's family escapes. And then we get to Haman the Agagite in the book of uh, Esther who's trying to wipe them all out. And so it's not until much later till this promise comes to fruition, but it's written down here. Why? Why does God say what he's going to do before he does it? Is it just to prove that he knows what he's talking about? Like if you were to predict something, to demonstrate that you know the future? There is an aspect of that. In the book of Isaiah, it's one of the things that God presents as evidence, as exhibit A, that he is the true and living God. This is what it says in Isaiah. He says, what other God has declared the end from the beginning? Okay, and so he says, this is one of the validations. This is one of the demonstrations of who I am. That I say I'm going to do something and then I'm faithful to do it. But don't mistake that for merely prediction. It's not just that God knows the future. It's that he shapes the future, right? When he says this is going to happen, he's not seeing that in a vision or a dream. He's bringing it to pass, okay? So it's not merely Knowing the future, it's sovereignty that we're talking about. But once again, why say it up front? Is it just to demonstrate and prove who he is? No, it does something else as well. It gives room for faith. We saw this very strongly in the life of Abraham. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham, I know that your wife is barren and you are old, but I'm going to give you a son, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Twenty five years later, the promise comes to fruition. Why? Because Abraham is learning to trust in God, and along the way, he learns to trust in hardly anything else, okay? And so here, we see the beginnings, if you will, of the Bible being written down because God is starting to develop his character, not just for Joshua, not, for, not just for the Israel of the wilderness, but the Israel that is to come, and that includes us, Okay? If you want to know who God is, the book of Exodus is a great place to look because the whole book is basically saying, here's who I am. And so you get it demonstrated in the stories of Exodus up front and then you get it extrapolated in the commandments of God and the law as it basically says, here is the law. This is a reflection of my character. You remember how I mentioned that everything here is going to kind of point forward what, to what's to come? This is a perfect example. We're about to get the writing of the Ten Commandments, God revealing himself uh, in graphe, in scripture, inscripturated. But already we get kind of an illusion in that direction before we get to chapter 20. Not only that, but we see a, a worship, a praise response in verse 15. It says, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, and so I want you to notice here, Moses builds an altar, and most likely here, this is not an altar for sacrifices, this is an altar as a memorial. Um, Have you ever noticed when we sing, come thou fount of every blessing, there's a verse that sometimes we sing, a lot of people don't sing it anymore, but it says, here I place my Ebenezer, okay, and I know for most of us, Ebenezer just means Scrooge. But that's the same idea that we're talking about here. Later on in the history of Israel, uh, Israel is falling apart. Judges have been bringing off small victories for small tribes, but it's not until Samuel the prophet that the nation begins to unify. And the first thing he does with a unified Israel is he kicks the Philistines out of their land. And so he rushes, uh, you know, he builds an army, and just like we're reading here, God fights for them, and they push them out, and he places a stone... And he calls it Ebenezer. And he basically says, "This is the high water mark. This is as far as we're ever going to let the Philistines back into the line uh, into the land. This is my Ebenezer, my, my memorial stone. We have come this far." So in the same way here, he builds an altar, and he gives it a name to remember the battle. And what is it? He says, uh, He calls the name of the altar, "The Lord is my banner." The idea here of banner is, is a military idea. In fact, most of the time, although it goes on later in history, this Hebrew word develops into this idea of like a banner that you'd think of it, like uh, King Arthur and the lion, that kind of a banner. Um, but earlier, the word just means a signal point, okay? And that's how it's translated throughout the book of Isaiah and in other places. The idea here is uh, more of summoning than of personifying, okay? And so we could call it a rallying point. When he says, the Lord is my banner, it means that's the thing that we, we, we um, come alongside, that's the thing we come around. But the recognition here is that, that God is going to fight the battles. And then notice what he says, uh, In verse 16, he calls it that saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so he says here, we've called it the altar, the Lord is my banner, because he's going to give us the victory. That as this battle goes on and on, God's going to fulfill his promise and he's going to take care of these things. Now I do just want to make an aside here. We have yet to talk about this huge question that takes up Israel being given the promised land which is that it's already occupied right and that the way they go about occupying it is not uh, not defensive but offensive right it's it's a campaign to take land from people who already live there I promise you we will address those things but I don't want to do it over and over again every time this is referenced and so so we'll get there just not tonight Um, chapter 18. So this battle happens, and then chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Okay? And so here's Jethro. This is um, Moses' wife's father. You remember back... Uh, In chapter three, when Moses flees from Egypt, he comes into the land of Midian and he meets a woman who will become his wife. And, and uh, Jethro is his father-in-law. He gets married and he works for Jethro as a shepherd for years and years until the burning bush experience. Okay. And so what happens is he's leaving back to Egypt. He has this crazy happening. um, And so he ends up sending his family back to Jethro. They've been staying there. We'll see that in just a second. And he says, Jethro, I'm leaving to, to see how my people are doing in Egypt. I'm going to bring them back this way. And now Jethro's starting to hear the reports. Okay. Imagine, imagine how quickly the stories would travel of the things that have happened in the book of Exodus. That the ruling power of the area, Egypt, has been overturned by a bunch of slaves and tremendously miraculous happening. And so he hears about these things, and he also hears that Israel is coming this way, and he goes out to greet Moses and to bring uh, Moses' family with them. So verse 2, now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zephora, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me. From the sword of Pharaoh. And so Eliezer just means, God, my help. Jethro, Moses' father in law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father in law Jethro, in coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father in law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Okay, and so we see this family reunion here, and then they're going to have a conversation. Verse 8, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Okay, and so what we see here is, is what we would call in modern language a testimony. He just says, let me tell you the story of what God has done for us, and he walks through it. And he tells them here how God has miraculously delivered them. Um, But I also want you to notice that he says uh, that this involves all the hardship that had come along them along the way. Along the what way? Right? This isn't hardship before they were delivered, but hardship after. When he's talking about all the hardships along the way, he's talking about the people complaining that there's no water. He's talking about the severe needs that they experienced in the battle with the Amalekites. It's worth pointing out here that the story that he gives his father-in-law is not missing the difficulties. Right? This is far from an infomercial where you ignore all of the hard things and just talk about the great things. Right? He's not trying to soft sell a relationship with Jehovah to this Midianite priest. Remember, this is a priest for another religion. That's what he does for a living. And he talks about the hardships. I think this is worth highlighting just because uh, we see the same thing promised constantly by Jesus to anyone who would follow him. Jesus never downplays the difficulty of being a Christian. And so he says, look, it's going to be hard. Look, people are going to hate you. Look, they're going to kill some of you. Look, following me is like taking up a cross and dying every day but I think we have this tendency to feel like we have to make Christianity more appealing. And so we hide the difficulties and we hide the struggle and we hide the darkness. But the thing is, and I promise you this, they will have hardship. They will have difficulty. And we've got to watch out for this thing that, that pitches a relationship with God as just being something that's pleasurable or comfortable. Ray Comfort, who's an evangelist who can be totally off-the-wall offensive, has a really good illustration that I've always appreciated. This is the way he puts it. He says, look, if you were on a plane and the person sitting next to you said, hey, look, I've got this parachute, and if you put it on, the meals will taste better, the movie will be greater, and you'll have an awesome flight. Can you imagine how quickly you'd see through that? Oh, great, thanks. And you put it on and you only had so much room in the seat to begin with, right? And now you can't even put your tray table down. You know, your food is spilling on the floor. You can't see the screen of the movie because you're leaning over the top of it in the sunlight. It's such a small screen, right? What are you going to do? You're going to take it off. How different is it when you say, hey, look, this plane is going down, but I have a spare parachute and it will save your life. Does that mean that there's not going to be discomfort as you're sitting in that plane seat with said parachute? No, it means you don't care. This is true not just in the hard things we go through as Christians. It's true with the hard things that the Bible says about God. Okay? Okay. There's an occasion where Jesus is preaching and he's developed a huge ministry. And specifically, it's because he's fed miraculously these 5,000 people. So they come back the next day with all of their friends. And he begins to teach them and he says, look, yesterday wasn't really about food in your bellies. It was about who I am and how God has sent me. And he starts off pretty strong and he's basically just saying, I am the heavenly bread. I will satisfy all of your needs. And people aren't getting it. They're pushing back on it. They're trying to argue him into another handout, effectively. And so Jesus says, look, unless you eat, unless you partake of the Son of Man, you can have no relationship with God. And people go, what? That's weird. Why would you say that, Jesus? And they're asking these questions, and he pushes deeper, and he says, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have no part with me. And people start to leave in droves. And he turns to the disciples. He says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter speaks up and he says this. He says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Do you think Peter understood what Jesus was just talking about? Do you think he wasn't trying to wrap his head around it? No, he'd learned that the difficulty was worthwhile. And it was totally... Uh, Appropriate to recognize that maybe Peter's the one who's wrong in this relationship. You see, we have to be willing to be honest with people, with our struggles, with the difficulties, with the hardships we face. We don't have to sugarcoat it because the reality is, even if the worst-case scenario is going on in your life, it ends with a permanently restored, close relationship with the living God who loves you so much he died in your place. Peter says, look, all of the, all the things I used to boast in, I see them as trash in comparison to knowing Christ. And then he goes on and he says, and now I just aspire to one thing that I might suffer like he did so that where there's death in my life, there would also be resurrection. So anyways, he's honest. He tells the story. He says there's been some hardships. There's been some difficulties. But nevertheless, they're alive. Nevertheless, God has shown up every day. Nevertheless, uh, God is good. And look how Jethro responds in verse 10. Remember again that Jethro isn't just a non-Israelite. He's a Midianite priest who worships his own gods. And this is what he says. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. See what he says here? He says, in what you've just told me, in what God has done for you, now I know who God is. Remember how much that was woven through the whole story of what God was doing with Israel? Pharaoh, I'm going to bring these plagues on you so that you would know. Israel, you're going to watch these plagues happen and I'm going to delay it. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that you would know. So that all of your children would know. So that the whole world would know. And do you see here how Jethro stands in direct juxtaposition to the Amalekites? Do you think the Amalekites just go, whoa, I wonder where this huge amount of people came from? No, they hear about what God has done in Israel, and like I said, they're opportunistic. They go, ah, here's something we can take advantage of. And like Pharaoh, God says to Israel, I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm going to make you slaves and kill your children. The Amalekites stand in the way of the promises of God. But Jethro, he's just another dude. He's a Midianite, he's a priest. He sees this, and he Sees and knows and understands, and he responds. And so, Not only does he say, now that I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, but look at verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. He becomes a worshiper of Jehovah. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. I want you to notice that there's an individual aspect to this worship, right? He offers sacrifices, and then he has a fellowship. All of the elders of Israel come, and they eat with him. Why? Because he's now... One of us, right? And so that's what's going on here. And so we're seeing just a glimpse of what God said the Exodus was about. In fact, we're seeing just a glimpse of what God had promised to Abraham, his whole plan for Israel was all about. God comes to Abraham, and yes, he says, I'm going to give you a land. Yes, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you many descendants. But he also says, and through you, all the nations, all of the non-Israelites will be blessed. Okay? God's intention in the story of Israel in the Old Testament is universal in scope. It's international. And he focuses in on Israel for the sake of the nations. And all the time throughout the Old Testament, we have these random non-Israelites showing up and establishing a relationship with the living God. We'll see this over and over again. But here's Jethro. And so now he comes. Uh, not only does Moses receive his family, but Jethro steps into the family of God. Um, look, look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now, just a side note. The word for judge here, don't think gavel and wig. Okay, The idea of judge here does mean discerning and determining between but it's it's a little bit different than that okay this would not just be when there was disagreements or court cases judge judy not not just that stuff but also people who are trying to figure out what it looks like to do right and are stumped okay and so this is not just decision making and arbitrating but also counseling what it says here is that every day he would make himself publicly available to all the people and he would be booked up from morning till evening, okay? Verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me in- to inquire of God, When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Okay, and so what he says here is they want to do right. And they want to, uh, you know, live as a community. And I'm the access point. I'm the mediator. In fact, we've seen over and over again God pointing to that reality. Okay. How do they find victory? Through Moses holding up the staff. Right? In fact, back in chapter 14, one of the reasons it's given that God says he's going to part the waters is so that they would know that Moses is his chosen servant. Okay. But here, he's just this bottleneck. All these people want to know, and he's just wearing himself out being the sole access point. Now, I already told you that the chapters we're looking at tonight are all pointing forward, and here we see an aspect of that again. Right? They don't just need a leader, to tell them what to do, they need a revelation, a law, and that's coming, right? And so part of the reason this exists is to to make us feel the need of what's going on. The Bible does this all the time. Back in the book of Genesis with Adam, God looks at Adam and goes, it's not good for man to be alone. And he parades the animals before him. And as Adam is naming all of the animals, he recognizes that among all the animals, there's no helper suitable to him. Right? He's showing him the need. Israel, God makes uh, the tyranny of Pharaoh and their slavery worse before he takes them out. Right? So that they're longing to be taken out of it. And so here we can see pointing forward to a serious problem in the plan, a need for God's plan to take a step forward. God is making a nation in Israel, and that involves three things. The first one we already saw at the very beginning, a nation needs to be a people, and not just a family of 12 brothers and their extended family, a total of 70 adults. That's where Exodus begins. But by the time we get to Exodus chapter 2, all they've done is build bricks and make babies, and they've grown into a nation, right? But just being a large people doesn't make you a nation. If you were to show up at the United Nations and raise your hand and say, we're part of a new nation, we'd like to be internationally recognized, if you're just a people, it's not going to work. You need two other things. One of the things you need is a land, okay? Israel couldn't be a nation within Egypt. They needed a land for themselves. And then the third one is there's got to be a law. And so God's plan to raise up a nation starts with the people. And now here at Mount Sinai, they're going to get the law. And then it'll be the land. And this is phase one of God's plan of redemption that we'll be walking through for the next few years. Um, But notice here. Notice here, Jethro sees this is going on and he says, this is dumb. And recognize also that as a Midianite priest, he probably knows a little bit about what this is like. Right? In Midian, the, the priest would have served a similar role of representing God to the people, of mitigating difficulties, right? And so he looks at this and he basically goes, you've got an administrative problem. And so he makes, uh, he makes a suggestion. Verse 17. Uh, teen, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the law and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. And so the first piece of advice here, he says, he says, you need to be the mediator. You need to be the voice. You need to be the leader is effectively what he's saying here. And what he's implying by saying this all front, up front is dealing with every single issue all day long. You can't actually do that. Right? He can't lead the people and mitigate every issue. He can't be a soldier in the ground war and a general at the top. And then he continues. And he says in verse 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Okay? And so it says a couple of things about these men. First, they're to be men from all the people. In other words, this isn't a place to pick a single class. This isn't a place to narrow it down to, you know, a single tribe. It needs to be representative of the people you're trying to rule. We see the same wisdom in the New Testament when the early church in the book of Acts is having a problem. Here's the problem. They have a register of widows, people who the church is taking care of their needs because there's no one else to take care of it. But... Some of the widows are Hellenistic Jews, meaning that they've adapted to the broader Greek culture. They probably day-to-day speak in Greek. They dress like a Greek. But some of the more Jewish Jews who tend to think of those as being lesser Jews aren't taking care of those widows in the same way that they're taking care of the ones like them. And it becomes such a contentious problem that the widows start to complain. And there's infighting in the church. So here's what the apostles do. They hear that request and they say, okay, take seven men from yourselves and appoint them to the task. And those men include men like Stephen and like Philip who become major players in the next few chapters. But here's what's interesting. If you look at all the names of the men on the list, every one of them is a Greek name and not a Jewish name. They select people who are sympathetic to the problem, okay, knowing that they'll care. Moses' idea, or Jethro's idea for Moses here is the same thing. It needs to be representative of all the people. You need, need to make sure that, that no sort of interior squabble or division can get in the way of this. The second thing he says is that they should, um, well, he says able men. I didn't talk about that, but I'll, I'll just say that that's self-explanatory. Not just any men, but able men. But then he also continues and says men who fear God. Okay? So he recognizes here that it's got to be people who orient the way they view life around God, who want mostly to honor and represent him. And then lastly, it says, and those who won't be takers of bribes, um, which once again, I think is self-evident. They want judges that can't be bought, okay? So he says, gather these up, And then he says uh, that they're trustworthy, they hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easy for you, and they will bear the burden with you. This is somewhat similar to how the court system works in the United States, isn't it? We have local judges, and then we have districts above that and, and when cases need to be they're pushed all the way up to the highest court authority the uh, supreme court of the United States right and so he, he gives the same advice here he says have them be playing at the lowest level and when they don't know what to do have them defer it up the chain okay um, and then he finishes and he says this um, he says so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you And so he says, you'll have less work to do, and they'll have something to do. And then finally in verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people will also go to their place in peace. Now it's possible here, what he actually says is, you should do this, and God will tell you so. In other words, he may actually be deferring and saying, see if God says differently. And I would say that makes sense, because he opens the conversation in the same way. He says, the Lord bless you at the, e-, at the beginning of his speech, and at the end, he says, God will direct you. But either way, he's giving his advice here, and Moses takes it. Now, once again, I think we need to ask why. Is God totally capable of leading Moses? Yes. Can he speak through a burning bush to do it? Totally. Totally. Why through his pagan father-in-law? Now, to be honest, Jethro is now part of Israel. He's come into the family. He's offered the sacrifices. But nonetheless, why is this story here? You see, one of the things I think we learn from this is similar to what we learned in the battle with Amalek. That there is God working and sometimes he works completely without us. And sometimes he works through us. And sometimes he speaks like guys, uh, through guys like Jethro. Or like Balaam. Right? Balaam is this weird, non-Jewish astrologer. And he's hired specifically to call a curse down upon Israel. And he finds himself unable to do so. And the story is kind of a mess because Balaam's kind of a mess. But contained in those blessings over Israel are some of the messianic prophecies of what God's going to do. And they're recorded as the words of Scripture. And I know we read this story and sometimes we laugh at the fact that God speaks through a donkey in the story, but it's really much more striking that he speaks through Balaam. And it won't be the last time in Scripture. See, here's the thing. God does miraculous things. But that's only one aspect of his sovereignty. Okay? And we saw this in the plagues. Some of the plagues you cannot explain. They just happen. Others have natural elements. Okay? And so an east wind blows the locusts in. They don't just appear, right? The wind brings them in, in the same way that the wind would bring locusts today. And we've seen other elements in the way that God does things. And we have to recognize that the relationship between God doing miracles and what we call his providence, which means the fact that he oversees all aspects of life, are not, uh, you know, diametrically opposed. They're fully compatible. And so here, Moses listens to Jethro's advice, verse 24, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads of the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times and the hard cases they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Now even that seems a little providential. Jethro could have left yesterday. He's got a family at home. He's got to go back home, but he stays an extra day and he observes this and they have this conversation and it shapes the administration of the people of Israel. It's striking that part of the preparation that God uses for Moses is a pagan preparation. He gets the best schooling Egypt has to offer as he grows up in the house of Pharaoh and he's not the only one in the Bible to do so. Take Daniel. Daniel is one of the young men captives that the, uh, uh, that the Babylonians take and decide to raise up as court officials. They take his traditional Jewish name that is a reference to God and they replace it, naming him after one of the pagan gods. They take, his, uh, they take him and they put him in school with all of the Astronomers, astrologers, magicians of his day, and he gets a pagan Babylonian education. The only thing he draws a line in the sand, by the way, is what he eats. And he says, no, dietarily, this is where it stops. But he takes that education. God is fully capable of using things in the world, outside the church, beyond the Bible, to shape us for what he has planned for us. Now, when those things are in direct opposition, you can't go, well, astrology is what I learned in school, so it's fine, right? There's clearly more nuance to this than that. A friend of mine uh, went to a seminary who, who made this point specifically from the book of Exodus. He said that we as Christians should be fully okay with plundering the Egyptians, right? When Israel leaves, they leave with the wealth of this pagan nation. And as I pointed out to you before, they use that wealth to create a golden idol, yes, but they also use it to build the tabernacle. Anyways, we'll just leave that there. So, that's chapter 18. Chapter 19, we finally get to the foot of Mount Sinai. Turn the page, we're in chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments and the rest of the book focuses on God's revelation through the law, through his direction. But I want you to notice that chapter 19 here is uh, incredibly important, that you can't get to 20 and skip 19. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 1, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And so he gives us a timestamp here. He says on the third new moon, that means three months after Passover. Remember, Passover follows the cycle of the moon. And so they've been traveling now for three months. They finally get to their destination. Verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Okay, and so they strike camp. They move, they settle at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses starts heading up the mountain. Now, you may remember back when Moses saw the burning bush, it was here. And even then, God gives Moses a sign. He says, this will be a sign to you. You will bring all of your people back to this mountain, and they will worship here. Okay, and so this event here is a fulfillment of promises. But as he's heading up the mountain, it says that the Lord begins to speak to him. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, so the first thing he says is, I want you to go back down and I want you to tell Israel, you have seen what I have done. He says, I've brought you this way and look at the image he uses on the back of the wings of an eagle. In other words, I've just carried you right? You've just flown through all of this because I've taken care of you. Uh, Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. We need to notice the order here. The order is first, I have delivered you, and then second, I'm going to give you my law. A lot of times as Christians we have this misunderstanding about the Old Testament that says in the Old Testament Israel was saved through the law And so God gave the law and if they kept it then they would be saved But what God's done in Jesus is he's laid the law aside and he just came and saved us But where's it anchored here? Where does it begin? Does God come to Israel and go I've got this law and if you're willing to keep it I will deliver you No, he just sovereignly delivers them To some degree, kicking and screaming, he drags them out of Egypt, right? And then we get the giving of the law. Paul makes a similar point in the book of Romans. He says, Don't misunderstand what the law is. Don't forget that before circumcision, Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Before chapter 17, there's chapter 15. And he says, And the giving of the law is 400 years later, the promise came first. So why the giving of the law? Well, it's for a couple of reasons. One is because God saves us and then we walk with him. And so this is an exposition of who God is and what that life looks like. And we'll see in just a second. It's a difficult thing for a sinful people to live with a holy God. Paul gives us another reason in the book of Galatians. He says that the law operated as a uh, a schoolmaster, as a tutor until the fullness of the promise was given in other words it was preparatory in nature the law like James says is a mirror that shows us our sin it doesn't give us a way to save ourselves it shows us we need a savior but once again the order here is first I save you then you live for me just like it is for us today And so he says, uh, you know, I want to give you the covenant. And then notice what he says about their identity. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all my peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy of nation. Sorry, a holy nation. So he says, I'm going to give you a new identity. And it's three things. The first is a treasured possession. And Before we can answer what that is, we have to see the context there. He says, treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And so he says, look, everything belongs to me, but you're going to be my treasured possession, right? And so notice two things. One is there's a reference to everybody else and then a uniqueness about Israel. We'll see that in all three of the statements that are made here. The second one I want you to recognize is that that the idea here of treasured possession clearly has to do with value, right? Right? God's not just going to be their God, but he's going to make them his people, right? Later, it calls, uh, God refers to Israel as the apple of his eye. I know you've heard the saying. And I know you have no idea what it means. We don't know either, okay? But we get the sentiment, right? It's at the very heart of what we care about. Maybe the apple of the eye is just the pupil of the eye, which is something you protect. We don't know. But a treasured possession. And then notice the second one. It says, "And you shall be a kingdom of priests. Now, he's about to raise up a priesthood, and it's just going to be the Levites, right? Only they could be priests in Israel. But here he says, the whole nation is an entire kingdom of priests. That also tells us about the role that Israel is to play. What is the role of a priest for Israel? To represent God to the people and the people to God, right? They're mediatorial in nature. And so they give God's benediction and blessing over the people. They present the sacrifices on behalf of the people. He says here that Israel's entire purpose is to be a kingdom of priests. Priests for who? For the nations. Right? Their role is mediatorial. So that people can know, like we've been reading about over and over again in Exodus, who God really is and so that they can be brought to God. And then the last one here is that there are to be a holy nation. And interestingly enough here, the word it uses for nation is goy. A lot of times, this is the word that's used to distinguish Israel from the nations, the goyim, right, the Gentiles. But here it says there'll be a holy nation, and so the emphasis is clearly that they're a nation, among nations, but this one is holy. Okay. Now, holiness is just a word in, uh, in the Bible that means set apart for a particular purpose, it means set aside and unique and different and other. When it refers to them being as a holy nation, though, the representation, or we really should read this together with a kingdom of priests. These are parallel terms, okay? And so the idea is probably best represented in what God's going to say to them in the book of Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. Why? Because you're to be a holy nation. You're to holy walk out and live my character in a demonstrative way so that the world can see it. Okay. Now here's what's interesting about these three labels. In Peter's epistle to the New Testament, talking to Christians, he says, that's who we are. We, today, are God's treasured possessions. We, today, are a kingdom of priests. We, today, are a holy nation. And so our purpose coincides with the purpose of Israel. To live as God's Chosen people to act as priests, as a kingdom of priests, um, uh, what Martin Luther called the priesthood of all believers. Okay, in other words, we've been given access to God, and we invite people into that, and then a holy nation that we live in a way that represents and demonstrates, puts flesh on, if you will, the character of God. And so this is this is what he lays before them. Um. And uh, so he says, go tell this to Israel, verse seven. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, sometimes, sometimes I've heard people criticize Israel for being so swift to sign up when they haven't read the contract, right? They just say up front, everything you say, we've got it covered, Okay. Now, that's probably an appropriate reading. We're going to see that Israel's going to fail relatively quickly. So that's part of the message here. And one of the reasons God gives the law clearly is to demonstrate, as I said, our need for a savior. But you also have to ask, what other answer is this? Is there to this? Okay. They've just watched as God has miraculously led them out. And now he says, I'm going to make you my treasured possession. I'm going to do this. What other answer is there? And so they respond to what God initiates. I was talking to a guy at a synagogue once. And he asked me, he said, Do you know why God chose Israel? And I was a Bible college student, so I had a pretty good answer, but I decided to bite my tongue. I said, No, why? And he said, God took his law to all the nations and said, Will you keep this? And all the nations refused except Israel. I said, that's really interesting to me because in Deuteronomy 7, it says that the reason God chose you is because he loved you and not for any reason on your, on your, on your side, on your particular. And we see the same thing laying out here. God delivered them and then offered them the covenant, right? Not the other way around. And so they say, all that you've said we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and, you may, also, uh, and, and may also believe you forever. Now, that word for forever is not like our word for forever, but it still means a really, really long time. And so being chosen here, it doesn't say as long as you live. Right? So that the people will believe you as long as you live. What's about to happen has to do with God's people in perpetuity. I'm about to do this so that people will believe you forever. And once again, there's this hint that's pointing to the fact that we are called to believe Moses. Moses, who you've never read or never met. But once again, we're getting this hint to the reality, the formation of the Bible. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man is neglected and dying on the steps of the mansion of a rich man. And so they both die. And one, the poor man is being comforted in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is is being tormented. And he speaks to an angel, and he just says, he just says, I see Lazarus right there. Can he just get just one drop of water quench my tongue and the angel says no the division between these two places is incrossable nobody's going to pass it and he goes well will you at least send somebody back to tell my family so that they don't join me here and the angel says if they don't believe Moses and the prophets then they won't believe anyone even if they raise from the dead Jesus says believe Moses that's his application of the story it's right there. It's listening. Hear hear the testimony of Moses. And we'll see that as it comes comes along. Um, <coughs> So we continue here. Verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care. Not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. That's with an arrow, not a gun. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. And so he says, okay, I'm going to manifest myself on this mountain. But before I do, you need to prepare yourselves he says go and consecrate the people and then he says on top of that you've got to set boundaries no one should lay a foot on the mountain and he says and if anyone does don't even go after them just kill them from a distance lob a rock or shoot an arrow okay and right now we should be appropriately going why this is God's people Israel in fact why would he care for them and bring them along this line what's the big deal about what's about to happen But the thing is, one of the big lessons that Israel is going to learn over the rest of the chapters of Exodus is how holy God really is and how sinful they really are. And so the interaction between those two things is death. It's dangerous. In fact, the last time that God came and blew through the neighborhood of Israel, right, the only reason their firstborn son survived is because of sacrifice and the blood they put on the doors. Right? That was the only distinction. And so here he says, consecrate yourselves, wash your clothes, take three days to prepare for this. In fact, he builds on this and uh, he goes down to the people, verse 14 Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. So he says, Prepare yourselves here, wash your clothes, and then he says, Also for the next few days abstain from sex. Okay? Why? The idea here is not that there's something inherently dirty about sex. In fact, uh, the New Testament makes it very clear when it says that the marriage bed is pure and undefiled. Okay? The idea here is not that sex is dirty. It's an idea of orientation. It's, if you will, sexual fasting. In fact, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says that a married couple should only abstain for se- from sex for a time and only then perhaps for prayer to devote themselves, okay? The idea here is one of priority, okay? They're to take meeting with God so seriously that they reorient their lives in in direct relationship to that. But the idea here has to do with, once again, the holiness of God. Why is it that there's a tabernacle and that tabernacle is basically made up of walls? And so not everybody can come in to the court but only the men. And not anybody can come into the holy place, but only the priests. And nobody goes in the holy of holies, but only Aaron, the high priest. In fact, we're going to see the same thing on the mountain. The people stay at the base. The elders, including Aaron uh, and his sons, the priests, come halfway up the mountain, and Moses is the only one who descends the top. We're about to get a temple on the mountain. Okay? That's what's about to happen. Why all the constant death and blood and sacrifice? Why does God care about what you eat and what you drink and what status you are based on if you're menstruating right now and how you go from being a leper to being clean? Why all of these things? Because he's once again teaching Israel a lesson about his holiness and about what sin does in our relationship which puts us at direct risk of a holy and just God. And so he's he says, prepare yourselves, be ready for this. Now, what Jesus does in the New Testament is he gives us access to the holy place. The court curtain is torn in two. In fact, it says in Hebrews, and I love this, that we have an anchor beyond the veil, meaning that the place that our origin starts from, our place of security, is inside, not outside, right? Not only that, but Jesus has washed us clean, and so our conscience has been cleansed we're forgiven and so now we can enter into a relationship with God and these things no longer defile they no longer stand in the way but Israel gets this on hand super serious lesson about God's character here verse 16 on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled that I think is probably an understatement okay remember here Israel's seen a lot of things They've seen God do the miraculous, but this is on a completely different level. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So there's fire, there's smoke, there's lightning, there's earthquakes, and there's this huge trumpeting sound. Uh, Verse nineteen, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Okay, most of Moses's role has been a little bit behind the scenes in terms of his relationship with God. He comes as a standard prophet and says, "Thus saith the Lord." But here, the curtain is pulled back, right, and we see what stands behind Moses. That's what they're experiencing here, and so they hear. Aloud in this loud, reverberating trumpet, God addressing Moses. And they see Moses talking back to him. Um, And so, verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Okay, so he's with the people. This all happens. And he walks right into the thick of this cloud to where God is. But notice this, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Now, <coughs> this seems a little bit over the top. And the reason I say this is because Moses is going all the way up the mountain. And I don't, I don't know about elevation of Mount Sinai, uh, but, but this is not, you know, this is not a couple of blocks. He gets all the way up there, and his only instructions is go back down. And God says, go back down lest they cross the boundary. You remember the one that he already told them about, the one that he set up a consequence for. He says, go down and make sure this doesn't happen. And look at uh, Moses' responds in verse 23. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And so Moses says, what's the big deal? We already have this covered. You've already given your instructions. But God is adamant. Verse twenty-four, and the Lord said to him, "Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them." So Moses went down to the people and told them. Clearly, what this does is over or uh, is heavily state reemphasize this seriousness, right? And it, this will continue as we move forward. Um. But he, we have to recognize, because I think here's the thing. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, you may or may not know those are in Exodus 20, but you have to understand that this is where that comes from. Okay? You have to see where those words are spoken. Okay? You can't have the murder she wrote theme playing through your head and watch God sitting at a desk and writing down the Ten Commandments. Right? This is in the context of this thing that theologians call a theophany, right? An appearance of God, and it's terrifying, it says, and it's powerful, and it's loud, and it's dangerous. Later, the Bible says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I think, I think we're at a time in history where we don't actually believe that, when we really think the distance between God and us, that the problem of sin, um, that the, the reality of guilt and uncleanness is just not that big of a deal. We see Jesus as just somebody who, it's like we scored a 99% and he just, he just gives us the extra credit and gets us in 100%. Or like we've run three laps of the race and we're just about to get to the finish line we don't make it and Jesus picks us up and carries us away across. That's not how the Bible presents the human condition or the problem that's solved in Jesus Christ. When it searches for a metaphor, the metaphors are never ones of gray and gradation. They're always ones of black and white, from death to life, from darkness to light, right? Of an unholy people. And I know this sounds like bad news, but it's actually good news, and here's why. It's good news because there really is a perfect God. It's good news because that perfect God is perfectly good, perfectly just, and diametrically opposed to evil. And I know that some of that evil you find in your own heart, but just recognize how much of it outside of you ransacks life. You don't just live a life of death, you live in a dead world, one of constant, frustrating corruption. And not only that, but the good things that sin keeps us from is this God, the benevolent God who takes that self-same sinful people, kicking and screaming, and says, I'm going to save you. I've got a destiny for you. It's the same God who says, look, I know the distance is unbridgeable, that there's no way you can repair the damage, so I'm going to take that damage on my own shoulders. It's that God who's so holy. You see, God's not just holy, he's holy in his love, completely devoted, without distraction. He's not just holy, he's holy in his justice meaning that the scales of the universe and history itself will be righted. But, like Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil runs right through each human heart. And so, yes, the holiness of God is real. The justice and the judgment of God is real. And it's that God who came to save. It's that God who invites into relationship. It's that God who solves the problem that we create. Um, and like I said, that's um, that's the foundation. How can we trust the promises of God? Because He's holy. Let's pray. God, we're walking through the history of Israel and it's one object lesson after another. And this one one can make us uncomfortable. This one can be hard to swallow. This one doesn't seem like how we view Jesus, but we have to understand this so that we can understand the greatness of what you did in Jesus Christ. Here we see the depths of the problem and we can use that depth to measure the glory and the beauty of the solution. And here you teach Israel the the reality about the, the sickening truth behind our sin and our rebellion against you. That it's not just one will opposed to another equal will or even one that's a little bit higher up the food chain, but that we stand opposed to the God who is life. That we seek to Self-glorify and and pursue our own worship uh, against the only God when we are merely creator, or that we are merely creation, Lord, and You are the Creator. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to um, walk through the law in the weeks to come and see how it reflects Your character. That we'd be able to see the goodness of the law and at the same time recognize that it wasn't given. So that we could get back to you. But it was given to those that you were already calling out to yourselves. So that they would know what it looks like. To reflect your character. To represent yourself like a kingdom of priests to the world. To live in relationship with the God who is life. To flourish as human beings. Um, But that, that our standing is not on the foundation of the law. But solely on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and our trust in him.